0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 22, Mr. Smith. In episode 21, you listened to part one of my interview with Joel Grote. And because we're going to be continuing that interview in this episode, I'll skip any intro material and I'll just try to catch you up with where we left off. We learned a little bit about Joel Grote and the Institute for Religious Research. We talked about some of the doctrines within Mormonism that most deviate from the historic Christian faith. Including the teaching that God was once a man, and that his father, uh, his God was once a man, and that his God was once a man stretching back into eternity, we talked about the Mormon view of salvation—that it is, um, uh, that it includes works if you want to become a god of your own—and we talked about how, although originally the Mormon um, Church viewed itself very much as uh, distinct, um. Religion from the rest of Christendom which it viewed as very apostate and from Satan in modern times it has instead tried to paint itself as just another denomination within Christianity um, and that left led us into the next half of the interview where we start to talk about the history of the Mormon Church and about Joseph Smith so with that let 's move right into part two of the interview
1: pleased to meet you Mr Smith.
0: So I'd like to shift gears um, to what I guess kind of fascinates me even more than um, Mormon doctrine. You, you told me in email that you'd like to give some of the historical background from which these doctrines we've been talking about spring out. And, and maybe we could start with Joseph Smith himself, you know, according to Mormonism, who is it that Joseph Smith was, and, and what is his story? What's the official, and I'm using quotes, uh, mm-hmm. story of the beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints?
2: The official story is Joseph Smith, um, in 1820, as a 14-year-old boy, is um, looks around, and there are religious revivals occurring around him in his town, and he sees all this confusion over religion. And so as a young boy who wants to know which church is really the right one. He's concerned about his spiritual state, and he's not sure where to go. And so he looks at James 1.5 that says, If you lack wisdom, ask God. And the Mormon story is he decides to do that, and so he goes out into um, the woods to pray. He goes out into what has now become known as the sacred grove, but he goes out away from his house into a grove of trees, and there he prays to say, God, you know, which of the churches should I join? And even says, you know, and it never even occurred to me that they were all wrong. And according to his testimony, according to what's become the official story, um, what happens is in that act of praying, both God the Father and Jesus Christ appear to him in kind of a waking vision where he sees both of them as men standing side by side. And the one points to the other and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And when Joseph asks which of the churches he should join, the answer he gets is, don't join any of them. They are all wrong. All their creeds are an abomination to me. And all their professors, not meaning like professors as a university professor, but in that, in the 1800s, the term professor meant anybody who professed the creeds or the doctrines of the churches. So any believer, mm-hmm. all their professors are corrupt. Um, they come near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Joseph receives from God himself an indictment against all of Christianity that's existent. There is no true faith on the earth. And that now as a young boy, he's going to be called to restore that. And um, three years later, he has another vision where the angel Moroni appears in his bedroom. And this time the angel appears to tell him that God has a special work for him. That there is a record, um, a history of the, of the ancient Americas written on plates of gold and that Joseph's job, his calling is to go find those plates and to unearth them and then to translate them into what will become the Book of Mormon. Hmm. And it takes him four years of having to go back. And each time he goes back, um, every year in the fall, the angel says, no, it's not now. And then finally, um, Finally, in the in the fourth year, in 1827, uh, the angel says, "Okay, now it's time." And he gets the plates. Excuse me, has to hide them from the people that are trying to get them from him, and he starts with the help of various scribes to um, translate them. Joseph doesn't write the Book of Mormon; he dictates it. Hmm. And so, and and the main the pictures that the Mormon Church shows are typically show Joseph Smith sitting at a table with a candle burning. Um, he's got gold plates open in front of him, uh, kind of bound in these big brass rings. And he's got somebody beside him writing as he pours over the plates and receives from God because they're written in Reformed Egyptian. They're written in an unknown language. But Joseph is given special ability by God to, to read and translate and dictate. And then his scribe, you know, the primary scribe was Oliver Cowdery, um, writes it down. And once he's dictated... All this, it um, goes to print, and in 1830, the book is printed and begins to get distributed, the Book of Mormon, and in that same year, Joseph Smith um, officially starts the church. He, it was just called the Church of Latter-day Saints hmm. at that time, and it's primarily um, family members and um, close friends that start this new church. Yeah. And from there, um, it grows, and Joseph gets revelation for people, and... Um, He begins to develop doctrine, and as he sends people out to proselytize and to spread the Book of Mormon, um, more and more people are drawn to the message that this is the restored church on earth, and it's the latter days. um, The church changes its name later on to the Church of Jesus Christ and then undergoes a final name change um, to become uh, the amalgamized name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mm. and then that becomes their Identity and they're called Mormons because they have the book of Mormon. Yeah. So, so they're this group and they have this, this book of, of Mormons. So these are the Mormons and that's kind of the nickname that is stuck. And I've noticed interestingly enough that after probably five or six years of attempting to really distance themselves from that name, they've now come back around full circle and are totally embracing it because hmm. their big ad campaign where they have Mormons talking about who they are and the kind of lives they live always ends with the same tagline. You know, my name is so and so. I do this, and I'm a Mormon. Hmm. So uh, evidently, they've decided that rather than try to buck the flow of of culture, um, they're going to embrace um, the name Mormon again. And um, they still don't like it to be called the Mormon Church. They prefer Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints or the Latter Day or the LDS Church. Yeah. Um, but it looks like so. That's kind of that's the official that's the official story of how it got started and how it grows. And and part of that story is that um, Joseph also has a couple of other revelations. He has John the Baptist appear to him, and John the Baptist gives him the Aaronic priesthood. And then sometime later, Peter, James, and John appear to him, and they give him the Melchizedek priesthood. Hmm. So now Mormonism is restoring um, the lost church and with that restoration comes a restoration of priesthood power, the power and the authority to act on the behalf of God, which has been totally lost since the beginning of the church, through these priesthoods. And so now they have both the Aaronic priesthood, like from the Old Testament, and the Melchizedek priesthood, which is mentioned in Hebrews. And now with those two priesthoods, they have authority. And they're the only ones with authority, to baptize, to give the Lord's supper, communion, yeah. um, to establish churches, um, so, I mean, obviously, you can go into more details of the story, but in terms of the founding, that's the official story.
0: Sure. Yeah, you almost don't know where to begin. But, uh you know, I, I guess um when I was first learning about Mormonism at the Institute for Religious Research, um, what I discovered was that in a number of ways, this sort of... Church-sanctioned account of its past, and that of Joseph Smith, isn't really historically accurate. And so, maybe we could start with Joseph Smith, Smith himself. Who was who was Joseph Smith before uh, he rose to notoriety?
2: Sure, uh, and that's that's the other thing that's foundational for people to understand when they look at Mormonism is um, Mormonism has systematically sanitized um, its history over the years. Um, looking to exclude or cover up or simply not talk about those things that would in any way detract from its claims to be what it claims to be. Hmm. And so in the process of that sanitization, yes, um, you realize that the, the historical story is, is very different. So to start with Joseph Smith, um, what we know of Joseph Smith in his past was that, um, they're a fairly poor family. Um, and they were very involved in a variety of enterprises to sustain themselves. And one of those was uh, money digging, which was Joseph Smith and his father were both involved in going out at night, um, claiming to have special powers to see buried treasure under the ground. And they weren't unique in this. If you do a study on Americana in the, you know, early 1800s, uh, you find that this wasn't uncommon, that there was a, a folk belief that Indians or or pirates had buried all sorts of treasure in the ground. And these treasures were supernaturally protected. In other words, they weren't easily detected because most often they had spirits set to protect them. So, But if you knew the right incantation, if you knew the right um, rituals, you could kind of bind the spirits long enough to get the treasure. Because if you didn't, the spirits, even if you were close to the treasure, could grab it and move it away under the ground and the treasure would shift. And, you know, we look at that and we go... <laughs> wow, that's really, but during the time period that was that was and there's been whole you know journal articles and stuff done on the, on the subject, so but Joseph Smith and his father are money diggers. They're people who claim to have the ability to see where the treasure is buried and to come up with the rituals to secure the treasure and so they would be hired by local farmers or local people um who thought they had treasure on their land. And and you would get paid for this. They would pay them to come out for the night. They would hire a crew to dig, to put poles in the ground, to sacrifice animals. Um, and Joseph was the key because Joseph claimed to have an ability to take a stone that he'd found, what he called a peep stone, um, also known as a seer stone, that he found when he was helping somebody dig a well. And when he would put that stone in his hat, Joseph said that when he covered his face with his hat, the stone would glow and it would give him clairvoyance. It would give him the ability to see under the ground where these treasures were. So Joseph's father would be the one organizing it, and Joseph would be the one who would stand there with his face in his hat telling them where to move and what to do and what was happening.
1: Hmm.
2: And again, this is amply documented. Yeah. This, is, this is not even questioned within Mormon historical circles. So this is, the, this is where Joseph and the, uh, the background comes out of. And it's, what's interesting is the testimony... Of those who are close to Joseph Smith, both positive and negative, say that Joseph Smith found the Book of Mormon, supposedly, with this same with the same thing. Mm. Um he, he he finally finds treasure. With his with his stone in his hat, he discovers these gold plates. Um and that's why in the early history, you know, it talks about Joseph talks about people wanting to get them from him. And the reason for that is not is because His fellow money diggers, once the word gets out that Joseph Smith has really found something, they want a piece of the action. (laughs) It's like, where's our cut? We've been doing all this money digging. You don't have a right to keep this treasure just to yourself that you supposedly found. So um, the testimony of how the Book of Mormon is produced is very different from what the Mormon Church portrays in its graphics. And on our website, we have a whole article um, called Translation or Divination where we track through the historical testimony of people who were involved closely, mostly friends or family, when Joseph Smith was translating. And the unanimous testimony is Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon the same way he looked for treasure. He put his stone in his hat, he covered his face with his hat, and looking in the hat, um, the letters or the words of the gold plates would appear and he would dictate the translation that would appear like word by word in the hat,
1: hmm.
2: um, which is why he can't write the Book of Mormon. He has to have somebody take dictation because he's got his face in his hat and he's reading what he's seeing in the hat. Yeah, um, And and that's the, that's the common, that's the story. I mean, that's friendly eyewitnesses. <laughs> yeah. um, and unfortunately that you don't see missionaries walking around with, you know, graphics of Joseph Smith sitting with his face in his hat, the <laughs> Mormon. Right. For for obvious reason because anybody who looks at that goes um there's some big problems. One um he, it really looks like a scam. If it's not a scam, then the supernatural power to do this is not from God because God is already in Deuteronomy um I believe it's chapter 18 has already soundly condemned any sort of occultic practices including divination and clairvoyance and and so for Joseph to use an occultic Form to produce a scripture from God is is totally inconsistent and totally um, out of character with God and how He reveals Scripture. Yeah. Um, so not to mention it raises a whole you know course of other issues about what's actually happening there. Sure. Um, so when it comes to Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, that's a really a key piece to why we have a reason to seriously question the Book of Mormon and outright reject it before you even get into the content. Um, the other thing you find is there is no evidence for Joseph Smith's first vision occurring in 1820, like he says. In fact, there are a half a dozen different variations on the story of how everything got started. And they Joseph changes how old he is. He changes his reason for seeking. And uh, we have... a We've developed this. We have a whole article on our website that kind of shows the progression of the stories. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the progression of what Joseph told or what his close associates told, you really kind of see a developing of, well, it all started with, you know, money digging. And really the Book of Mormon was protected by a spirit, um, a toad that transformed itself into a man that knocked Joseph on his keister when he tried to get the plates which would have been very consistent with the idea of a spirit protecting a treasure and from his money digging background, sure, but as soon as people start to listen to him, he starts changing it, and it goes from being a spirit, you know a toad becoming a man's spirit to an angel, and then it becomes not an angel in the context of money digging, it becomes an angel which appears in his bedroom to tell him where to go hmm. so you know so there's this slow progression of what's happening, and then it becomes you know, several angels who appear. And at one point, he inserts this thing where he says, well, actually, no, what happened is I was praying about forgiveness of sins and Jesus appeared to me, which is a story very common to other testimonies of the day that would appear in periodicals where young men would claim to have a visionary experience of Christ when they were, you know, convinced of their sinfulness and Jesus would appear to say, your sins are forgiven. And so Joseph has one of these that he inserts in in 1832 um, that just totally throws everything off. Um, And then he goes back to the story of angels for a number of years. And then finally in 1838, when he's asked to kind of come up with an official history, he brings everything together. Um, The idea of revivals, um, appearing. And so he tries to tie it all together into one neat narrative That incorporates everything, and he pushes his age back to even younger, before it's been 15, 16, 17. The big problem is, historically, when you look at the evidence, nothing fits. Hmm. There are no revivals in 1820 like he's describing. Um, He's got contradictory elements because he says, you know, it never occurred to me that all the churches um, were wrong. And yet, in earlier ones, he says you know i'd come to the conclusion that none of the churches were right yeah so so anyway you just have this whole mess of of conflicts and contradictions all coming from the same person which just has to make you wonder okay is this official conglomerate sanitized version how much tie does it really have in historical reality and the more you look at it the more you go no um the most obvious explanation is he's being pushed to explain where all this has come from, and he attempts to write something that draws it all together and really gives it a nice Christian spiritual feel to it. Sure. But there's no historical facts to back it up. In fact, quite the contrary. Yeah. So that's very problematic, because all of Mormonism is based on this idea of first vision of seeing the Father and the Son.
0: Yeah. Well, now... I ordered a DVD several years ago. I think it was several years ago. I ordered a DVD from um, IRR, uh, something about the Book of Abraham. And, and this was really instrumental for me in helping lead a friend of mine out of Mormonism. What, what is the Book of Abraham? What do Mormons believe about it, its origin, its discovery? And, and, and in contrast, what do we actually know?
2: Okay. The Book of Abraham is part of Mormon scripture. The origin of this scripture is unique for Mormonism in a sense in that it comes from papyrus scrolls that are still in existence. Hmm. With the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith claims that once he's done with the plates, the angel takes them back, even though he really never used the plates in the translation. While he's got his face in his hat, the plates are either covered or they're buried or they're off in the woods somewhere. So, um, But there's no plates for the Book of Mormon. His later revelations are simply... Revelations from God, where he just says, God told me, and and he kind of gives it out. And with the book of Abraham, a traveling um, dealer in antiquities, Michael Chandler, um, comes to where Joseph Smith and the early Mormon church is located um, in, uh, in Kirtland, I believe they are at the time. Because he's heard, he's traveling around selling this collection of mummies and Egyptian artifacts that were found in Egypt, were brought to the state, and then were being sold. So he's traveling around selling these for somebody, for contractors back out east. Well, he's heard about Joseph Smith and his claim to be able to translate ancient records. So he decides to make a stop where Joseph Smith is to show these off. Well, when he gets there... um, he shows the he shows these papyri scrolls that he has and all his other artifacts he's got you know several mummies still that he's exhibiting and and selling and when his followers hear they ask if they can take the scrolls to Joseph Smith to see what he'll make of him well they do that and when they do Joseph says wow these are scrolls written by Abraham and by his Great grandson Joseph when they were in Egypt, hmm. because they knew they were Egyptian papyri. So Joseph immediately assigns, excuse me, to these scrolls, um, ancient authorship of Abraham, the patriarch, and Joseph, the patriarch. Well, his followers become very excited and they want to buy the scrolls so Joseph Smith can translate these lost scriptures. And they want to just buy the scrolls, but the antiquities dealer wants to be done with everything. So basically, says <laughs> no. If you want to buy it, you got to buy it all. So they managed to raise—I don't know—between I want to say three, if I remember right, three and four thousand dollars. It's a, for that time a, for that time in history. That's a huge sum of money. Hmm. But they raise it and they buy the scrolls and the mummies. Um, and Joseph starts translating them. And as he works on them, he develops kind of a translation book he calls the Egyptian Alphabet and Grammar, where he's writing down what certain characters mean and their translation to them. And in the end, he ends up translating one of the scrolls, the Book of Abraham, into what we now have, as the what's been canonized as the Mormon scripture called the Book of Abraham, that talks about Abraham in Egypt and his studying astronomy. It talks about um, polygamy. It talks about a plurality of gods. It's interesting because all the issues that Joseph Smith was beginning to talk about during that time period that he has no support for scripturally suddenly find support in this new papyrus that he's translating. Well, you know, people believe it. It eventually becomes part of Mormon scripture. Um, The scrolls that he buys after his death go to his wife, Emma. Shortly after she gets them, she sells them. They're obviously not super important to her, but we know Emma was already very disappointed in Joseph because of his polygamy that she knew about that he'd been practicing secretly for a number of years. Hmm. Totally different story, but yeah, but that factors in because you know at that point, at the point of his death, he's secretly married um, over thirty other women. Wow, Um, and you know. Eight or nine of those are are teenagers. They're 14 to 19 years old. Another 11 of those women are um, married to other men at the time. Wow. But that's a whole segment. But that explains a little bit why Emma, even though she has these papyri that are supposed to be ancient scriptures, um, sells them. Yeah. You know, not long after Joseph's death. And they go to um, a museum. People thought they were probably in, in the Chicago Museum. So after this is translated, and starts being published, you start getting Egyptologists. I mean, at the time Joseph translates it, nobody knows ancient Egyptian.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, in Europe, they barely started working with the Rosetta Stone. So Egyptian's an unknown language. So he could have put anything and who's going to say otherwise? There's right. no scholars to, to corroborate it. But within, you know, within 40, 50 years of this, as it gets more scrutiny and Egyptology develops, All of a sudden, questions start being raised about these, because he not only has writings in the Book of Abraham, he has copied pictures from the papyri with the Egyptian characters. Hmm. And as scholars look at that, they go, wait a second. That looks like what we've seen in other places, common funeral papyri called the Book of the Dead, which is kind of like all the incantations and magical spells that you bury with a person to guarantee... Good progress in the afterlife.
1: Hmm. It's
2: kind of a fill in the blank sort of thing. Um, whereas a standard text and you fill in the blank of the person it's for <laughs> and then the scrolls get, and the scrolls get buried with them. So right. that's why they recognize them because there's a lot of commonality. Well, this immediately, um, in effect, it's like front page of, I believe the, the New York Times, um, where they publish this. So the Mormon church has to respond because it's like, you know, what is this? And the response is, well, the original papyri are gone, so we can't really test this because they're lost. And they presumed they'd been destroyed in the Chicago fire. Well, fast forward to 1966-67, they're rediscovered at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Wow. And people are really excited. And um, supposedly a guy stumbles on them we know that several people were in the process of tracking them down, including a close friend of our ministry who's now deceased. He actually had call numbers associated with the papyri, Hmm. and he was in the process of trying to track them down and get a hold of them. And so I think the true story is people at the museum knew, and even Mormon contacts knew they were being tracked down, and so they arranged for the museum to um, donate them to the church. Um, and they do that, I think, before they fall into the hands of, you know, quote-unquote anti-Mormons or independent, you know, researchers. So when the church gets them, it's this huge news thing. We now have the original papyri. So then it's like, wow, for the first time, we've got something that can validate Joseph's prophetic gifts. Sure. Because we have Egyptologists, and the church does. They submit the papyri to Egyptologists, Only the translations that come back have nothing to do with the book of Abraham. Hmm. And the church's response is to begin a series of recasting, reframing, respinning, and basically beginning to suppress um, any of the, in fact, the promised translations that they were going to provide never appear in the Mormon journals and periodicals where they were supposedly going to happen. Because the Mormons who are in the know realize that they've got a serious problem on their hand. Right. Because this is a scripture. so And so you have, and we go into that in the DVD, the different explanations. But the bottom line is, once the papyri surface and there's enough to connect them, they're the original. They've got backing paper from the time period. So we know that the original papyri is that everything Joseph had, no, but you can piece together. And we at Institute for Religious Research, we actually submitted the papyri to an Egyptologist at the University of Chicago for a translation. And that was published in a Chicago journal of New Eastern um, Studies by, if somebody wants to try to Google it or look it up, um, the scholar's name is Robert Rittner. Um, So, different story. But the bottom line is, all of a sudden, we have a very objective case that shows Joseph Smith was deceiving. He was pretending to do something he couldn't do, and he was using that to try to back up doctrines he was introducing that were getting some pushback polygamy, plurality of gods, he was receiving some flack. And so he sees an opportunity to pass off a new scripture, he does it, and he's caught. Yeah. And so um, it's, uh, it's significant because, one, it's objective, um, and two, it goes directly to the character and claims of Joseph Smith, and it reflects directly back on the Book of Mormon, and his claims to have done that, where we don 't really have any objective evidence to kind of to test it by sure, um, not to mention that this whole idea of translation and joseph 's fraudulent claims to do it you 've got evidence of that fraud with what are called the kinderhook plates, so if people want to you know investigate the Kinderhook plate incident basically it 's some people who want to try to trap Joseph, so they created these bogus plates, buried him in an Indian burial mound. Rediscovered him, took him to Joseph, and said, "What is this?" And he said, "Wow, these are ancient." And he starts, you know, giving some pieces of translation for them. And then they say, "Oh, guess what? We created these." <laughs> um, it's kind of like, "Gotcha." Yeah. So, so there are several little pieces there that, when you look, you go, raise serious questions about Joseph's integrity, about his prophetic claims and abilities. Um, and the book of Abraham is simply one of the most clear-cut, objective cases and it's why we produced um the book and pub- published the book and produced the video because for us it's so important for us that Mormon people recognize that there is significant evidence that Joseph Smith was a fraud. Um Jesus Smith's Jesus yeah. <laughs> That's right. Jesus said that there would come false prophets in Matthew 7. And he said, the way you know false prophets is by their fruit. Mm. And their fruit is, what's their life and what's their teaching? And Joseph's teaching goes totally contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture on God, man, salvation. And Joseph's life is clearly a life marked by fraud, by deceit, by occultism, by sexual immorality, by a lack of integrity, by cover-up. Um So that's why I say when you take an objective look at the factual historical evidence, it's very hard to come away with any conclusion other than Joseph Smith was a uh, religious fraud and a deceiver. Yeah. And that puts Mormons in a really difficult place, um both spiritually and especially spiritually, but also culturally and socially.
1: Sure.
0: Well, so are, are there any other pages of Mormon history that perhaps many Latter-day Saints would prefer not be turned? I, I mean, I'm thinking of things like blood atonement, the Adam-God teaching, stuff like that. Uh, and then also, how, as you mentioned in the email, does LDS doctrine sort of spring out from all this, the, the church's history?
2: Um, sure. there are. Yeah, there are certainly issues within the Mormon church that they are trying to avoid. One is the whole issue I've already talked about, Joseph Smith's polygamy and the secretness of that, and then um, just how the Mormon Church handled that, where when they start to get pressure from the United States government, where they're threatening to not allow them to have statehood, when they are threatening to come in and totally claim all Mormon assets and take it over, it's at that point that the Mormon leaders, after years of saying, we will never disavow polygamy, this is an eternal commandment from God, and it's in their scripture. Mm. They all of a sudden get a revelation saying, okay, polygamy is not for today. So you see these revelations of convenience, and you actually see Mormon leaders um, lying under oath about polygamy and about their practice of it after they say that they've discontinued it. So, yeah, yeah. that whole area is an area that um, I think mm, the Mormon leadership would prefer not be looked at too carefully. Certainly, the idea of blood atonement uh, was something primarily in in Brigham Young's day where... It's the idea that the blood of Christ isn't sufficient to atone for certain sins, uh, like murder, like adultery, and so you have to have your own blood shed. Wow. And there is there's you know limited amounts of historical evidence that that was indeed practiced, and it certainly was something that was taught um by the Mormon church, which again, you know, totally contrary to scripture where it says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Mm. Um Adam God, yeah, that's another one. And where Brigham Young has these really strange, kind of bizarre, and they're not even consistent within Brigham Young. Totally about who is Adam, how to identify him, is he really the God of this world, and what it sh- what it simply shows to me is that these supposed Mormon prophets, leaders that have a direct pipeline to God, have no theological understanding. They're kind of just shooting from the hip. Mm and and it and it's bad enough that a later mormon prophet president has to refer to adam god as as false doctrine as a theory that you know needs to be put down so here you've got one mormon prophet and president having to identify a teaching that he taught for decades i mean for decades brigham young taught this in various forms you have a later one having to say you know this needs to be disavowed. Right. So I think to me it goes to the fact that when you look at Mormon leadership from Joseph Smith forward, you see several things. You see a lack of biblical understanding. You see a lack of theological comprehension of what the Bible's teaching and what even the core of what God has revealed is. You see them taking off on their own tangents and justifying that by saying, God told me. And then you see in their lives... um, things that are absolutely inconsistent and unrepentant. Because Mormons will say, well, yeah, didn't David sin? David committed adultery and murder. Absolutely he did. And he confessed it. He recognized it as wrong. He did not justify it, defend it, or try to, you know, he did try to cover it up. But once it was revealed, it was revealed. And he paid the consequences for that throughout his life. You don't see that in Mormon history. You see no repentance. Same thing with Mountain Meadows Massacre, where a group of Mormons... Um, kill one hundred and eighty men, women, and children you know in in cold blood wow. as they go through the Utah territory. Uh, a whole different story that again the church has spun and I don 't think dealt with honestly and openly um, and you 've also got things like the foundational elements of the Mormon story like um, John the Baptist appearing, the Joseph that I mentioned and Peter James and John appearing. and when you start looking at the historical record in the scriptures, you find that Joseph, backdated that information into earlier revelations in other words he gave a revelation in 1829 in 1831 32 before it was republished he went back in and added material to the earlier revelation without any indication making it look like it was material that came about in 1829 when mm-hmm. in fact it came about a couple of years later to justify changes he was making in the church yeah so there's a lot of there's a lot of information um like that that yeah, I think the Mormon church would really prefer in fact it encourages its members not to look. It it, it discourages them to look because I think they know that from an objective standpoint it, Joseph Smith is no more a prophet than you know than Rulon Jeff's or um some of these other fundamentalist polygamous Mormons that have been in the news. Um, in fact, today, if Joseph Smith did back in what he did back in the 1840s, if he were to do that today, he would face, you know, criminal, criminal trials. Sure. He he, he would. And our society would say, this man is not a prophet of God for good reason. Yeah. So and, and Mormons will say that about people today who do that. So there's this interesting disconnect. Between what's happening today and yet Joseph Smith doing the very same things back in his day, um, they're willing to they're willing to give him a pass, right? Because the implications to their whole religious system are so great. So yeah, there's some interesting disconnects there within within Mormonism, and those disconnects play right into an aspect of Mormon culture that many non-Mormons um, aren't aware of, especially if they've only encountered uh, Mormon people or the Mormon system casually. And that's what I like to refer to as kind of a culture of deception. Uh, and it plays off of, uh, for the Mormons, this idea we talked about, I think, earlier in the program, Chris, that uh, the Mormon Church is the one and only true church on the face of the earth, hmm. and that their leadership is prophetic Um, is divinely ordained by God. And there's almost a sense, in fact, at times it's been spoken outright, that the leadership cannot possibly, God would not permit the leadership to um, lead the people of the church astray. Mm. And so then what you have as you deal with Mormon people is a willingness and really a desire to protect the image of the one true church at all costs because Mormons do see uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as God's church. They see it as Christ's church. In fact, they see it as the only church that is legitimately um, Christ's church. And so what happens then is as you begin to encounter some of these difficult issues, and even as you may bring them up to a Mormon, it is not uncommon. And I've had this happen to me all over the world with with Mormons at all different levels, all the way from just the common person on the street to Mormon missionaries to even um, bishops and stake presidents. Um, and that sort of thing, and it and it's this uh, you present something that you've come across from Mormon doctrine or Mormon history that is disturbing that has serious implications for the the veracity of the church, and the response you get is well that's not true um that that's just anti mormon rhetoric that's that's just something that somebody made up um where Where did you get that because you really got to be careful there there's a lot of lies spread about us and and so for a Christian who's maybe gotten this information from the Internet or from a pamphlet or from a, a trusted speaker or friend, they are kind of stopped by that because here they've got something that they have just assumed is documented and correct, and their Mormon is saying, oh, that's absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. Or they may say, well, I've never heard anything you know, about that. That, that can't possibly be true. I've been a Mormon for 20 years. And, and what people have to understand is at that point, there's a very good chance the Mormon could be lying. Now, he doesn't see it as lying. What he sees it as doing is he's protecting the image of the church. Hmm. Um, and that is really the highest value um, within Mormonism. The highest value in Mormonism, in terms of my experience at, at a lot of different levels, and it's, a, it's subconsciously held, I think almost more than consciously, that's that you do whatever you need to do to protect the image of the church and to make uh, Mormonism attractive so people will join it. And so if somebody has stumbled onto, for example, Joseph's polygamy, as an example I've had repeatedly, um, and, I've, and I've dealt with Mormons in probably about a dozen countries on three different continents, and, and I found the same thing true everywhere I go, which is when you raise some of these questions, you get this outright denial because they think they need to protect the image. Otherwise, if you were to know this ahead of time, you wouldn't join the church, which would probably be true. So, for example, I'm um, I'm in Caracas, Venezuela, and I'm at the Mormon temple opening there, and I'm with a group of Christians from a bunch of different churches, and we're just out on the streets in you know in out around the area where the temple is. We're not on church property at all, um, but we're close enough that we're getting foot traffic that are going back and forth visiting the Mormon temple, and we're handing out uh, a pamphlet, a tract that we have that's called "Our Mormon Temple's Christian." Which simply looks at the key to Mormon temples and explains things, and it's very well documented. It's very respectful. But as we as we're doing that, we have some Mormon leaders that come from the temple down the street because um, they've heard about what we're doing. We're purposefully only giving material to people who are leaving the church, uh, the temple, because we don't. We're not trying to. You know, this is their open house. We're not trying to rain on their parade. But we do want to inform people, and. Um, I, I all of a sudden have two or three Mormon leaders and several Mormon missionaries and probably um, just some people from the street standing around me because they figured out I'm the one that's kind of leading uh, this entourage here. <laughs> yeah. and, and so they start asking me questions and saying, you know, well, why are you guys here? Why are you persecuting us? And I say, well, you know, we're really not persecuting anybody. We're answering people's questions. We're not arguing with people. We're simply handing out literature and... um and as they start to question me, other people kind of start to gather around to listen. And um, one of the leaders says, "Well, what you know, what is it that you have against us? Why, you know, why would you even do this for Christians like you?" And I mm-hmm. said, "Well, our our concern is that there's information that people aren't getting, and that really, when I look at the teachings of Joseph Smith, it doesn't line up with the Bible. So I have a hard time accepting, you know, some of Joseph's teachings as true and as truly Christian." And of course, the immediate response is, "Well, what do you mean, like what?" I said, well, for example, you know, Joseph Smith taught that God was once a man like us and that he had to progress to Godhood, that God hasn't always been God. I said, right there, that's two of the most foundational teachings of Christianity. God has always been God, and he's never been a man. He's never had to, to progress. That's right. And his response was, well, that's not true. I said, it's not true? He said, no, that's not a teaching of the church. <laughs> and I said, uh, and I'm really kind of surprised, because this is obviously a leader, and I can't remember what level, if he was um, part of the, the temple, first pre, temple presidency. or um, But anyway, he was obviously somebody there and somebody in charge. And I said, really? You're saying that your church, that Joseph Smith didn't teach, that God was once a man like us? I said, that's even quoted. He said, oh, no, we would, that's just anti-Mormon rhetoric. You guys make up. So much stuff to make us look bad. He said, that is just so not right. And and I'm really kind of surprised, because this is one of the first times I've encountered this at like a leadership level. Mm-hmm. I've had members respond that way, and I'm always thinking, well, maybe they haven't heard this. But I'm thinking, this guy has got to know. So I just um, said, so really, you're telling me this is not a teaching in the church, and Joseph didn't teach this he's going, absolutely, yes. And in, in the meantime, I probably got 10, 12, maybe 15 people around. Mm. And I'm thinking, this guy is denying this because he realizes that probably 50% of the people standing around aren't Mormons. And of the other ones that are, there's probably some young Mormons or even more missionaries who maybe don't know about this. Yeah. So um, I took my backpack off my shoulder, and I said, so really uh, – Joseph didn't teach, yes, and I reached in my backpack and I pulled out my Spanish language copy of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith that's published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Um, and I'm opening it to page 427, where I have the quote, because I'm always expecting this sort of thing to happen, Um, and so I always try to have certain documentation with me on points that people just find hard to believe. I didn't expect it from a Mormon leader. And the minute he sees what I've got in my hand and he sees me opening the book, his whole tone and rhetoric changes. And he starts saying, well, of course that's a teaching of our church. (laughs) Um, Yes, Joseph Smith taught that. That was something that was revealed to him by God, and it's very important. And it's actually one of the things that, you know, shows that we're the only true church because we have this understanding of God that goes back to Joseph in the first vision. And it's like, whoa in In less than forty five seconds, <laughs> this guy goes from total denial, never said it anti mormon rhetoric to um basically defending and arguing for why it's such an important teaching in the church yeah and i I came away from that counter I said, "What was going on there and and he and the thing is when he switched over, he did not appear at all chagrined, he made you know no apologies for what he'd been denying previously, he just simply switched gears Mm-hmm. And when I thought back about that incident later, and I've had that almost identical scenario play out in, like I say, several different countries and with Mormons at different levels. And with, with the pretty much exact same results, as soon as I pull out the documentation, they realize, oh, they can no longer hope that it's simply their word against mine. Yeah. And I realized, wow, there is a culture within the Mormon church that says we must defend the image of the church at all costs. And if that means... Lying outright denying outright things we know are true if we think those will be difficult for the non Mormon or the young Mormon to accept then we'll do those in hopes that you know we can just kind of you know deal with it later yeah or the, or that the person who's saying it doesn't have the ability to prove what he's saying Um and so, and and that, and there's a trickle down of that all through the church, so that even the average member is willing to do that with his Mormon neighbor or his Mormon coworker. Mm-hmm. So I, I share that not so much to say Mormons are awful people and they lie all the time about their church, because I, for for me, my sense is this is something they do culturally. I mean, Mitt Romney did it on the campaign trail. It was very interesting to watch Mitt Romney be, I think, as straightforward. And as direct as he could with questions about his governorship, about even some of his changes in views um, on things like um, abortion. But when it came to anything related to Mormon doctrine, anytime he was asked a question about Mormon doctrine that was going to touch on one of these subjects that implicated not being Christian or mm-hmm. kind of show it to really not be authentic, he shaded or denied or switched the subject. I never heard Mitt Romney give a direct, honest answer about Mormonism in any of the times I watched him interviewed or, yeah. or that I read. And, and again, I think it's because it's the culture. It's protect the image of the Mormon church at all costs. And I just want our listeners to be aware of that so that when a Mormon says that's not true, that's just anti-Mormon rhetoric, they don't immediately go, oh, man, you know, somebody's been lying to me because here's a Mormon and they're telling me um, because they will – um They will do that. And to them, it's a good thing. To them, they're defending and protecting the church. So uh, it's just something that um, I've seen and experienced over, you know, 20 years of ministry that I've come to understand, you know, better and better. And I have very good Mormon friends um, who still, you know, do this with me. And uh, we've got a friendship, so I'll kind of call them out and go, hey, wait a second. You know, remember who you're talking to. I've I've been studying this. I've got all the books. (laughs) And they're, you know, at times like, oh, yeah, but, you know, if you understand it this way. Right. Um, so I just thought that it was kind of important for people to to be aware of. So when they don't immediately think, oh, the information I've been given is suspect, um, but also but that they'd be ready to document um, and, that they, and that they'd be ready to say. And if they don't have it, simply say to the person, wow, um, the follow-up question that I like is this. Okay, you're saying it's not true. If you were to find out that it was true, if I could document, if I could show you beyond a shadow of a doubt from even your own sources that it is true, what implications would that have for your faith? Hmm. And that way you're not accusing them of lying, but you're kind of raising, um, you're upping the ante a little bit. And, and then you wait what they say. And if they say, oh, you know, no, that would be a serious You know, thing for me. If that was really true, then you say, okay, well, let me do some research and see what I can find, and you do it. And I'm nine times out of ten, we can provide you with, you know, half a dozen things that document it. Um, So anyway, I that that's important, and and I hope that it I hope that it provokes compassion in people um, and just a greater understanding. We need to very compassionately invite Mormons to look at. I don't think it's something we hit them over the head with. I think it's very important that our movement toward Mormon people with any of this information is out of care and concern that they know the truth, not because we're so desperate to slam or put down their religion. Do you know what right. I mean, Chris? Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and that's my hope. I would hope that none of this information would be used by somebody as a battering ram <laughs> right. against you know Mormon friends or family members or coworkers. That's you know that's not the point. Because mm. um, I have close friends who are Mormons um that i care deeply about and and for the most part they're honest and sincere dedicated people but many of them remain unaware of a lot of this stuff yeah so
0: yeah well that sort of answers my next question which was what sort of attitude that should we have toward them you know because i've i i think i've been guilty of this of of using this information as a battering ram and i and i feel really bad about that um you know, I think you're absolutely right that, that we should be we, this should be out of compassion that we're reaching out to these people. And I guess the question that I have for you as we begin to wrap this up is what can we do when, when we hear a knock at the door? And there are a couple of missionaries there or when we found, find out that a family member or a co-worker is a Mormon or, as I mentioned earlier, was the case with me when we find out our physical therapist is a Mormon in these kinds of situations, what can we do um, to reach out to them?
2: All right, well, I think you there's you need to make a distinction between Mormon missionaries at your door and the person that you've got ongoing contact with, like a friend or a co-worker or a physical therapist. So I'll start with the Mormon missionary first. Okay. Mormon missionaries are young, idealistic, for the most part, dedicated, sincere young men who know next to nothing about the deeper doctrines of their church and their own history. Hmm. So when they come to the door, and if you raise issues like Joseph's polygamy or the changes in the first vision, and they say... What? I've never heard anything about that. What are you talking about? They're probably being honest. Hmm. Um, and we shouldn't think that they're being intentionally deceitful. In fact, I've had more missionaries themselves tell me it wasn't until they got on their mission that they started discovering some of this stuff. And often they discovered it by going door-to-door to people who were um, sometimes Christians who were more informed <laughs> than them. <laughs> so so what we want to do is remember that. And what our goal at the door with a more missionary is to plant seeds of truth by our attitude and by our information. Hmm. So I think there's really three things we can do when a more missionary comes to our door. We're kind, we're respectful um, to them first off. Um, and tone and attitude says everything. And sure. a person detects that. So so check your heart, you know, before you check the door. Right. Having said that, there are a couple of things that we can do at the door, you know, very quickly that I think any Christian can do. And the first is share your testimony of faith in Christ briefly, who you were before Christ, um, how you came to faith in Christ, and what Christ has been doing in your life, um, you know, with the emphasis that this is a gift that we, we receive provided by God because our sin problem is so big. And then the whole assurance of our salvation, the assurance of eternal life in the presence of Heavenly Father. And I like using those terms because that, the term, you know, eternal life in the presence of Heavenly Father, to a Mormon, that means that's what they're going for. That's yeah. the highest level. Um, and having done that, you do a couple of things. Uh, Mormons can't have 100% assurance of where they're going because it's dependent on their works. So they don't know for sure where they're going to end up. Now they're pretty much sure they're gonna get one of the kingdoms or another. So by talking about our assurance of salvation, we address something that is an internal concern. Yeah. Um the other thing that we do is I think we kindly challenge them. We ask them how much they've looked into the background of their founding prophet in their church. So rather than debate doctrine with them, um what I what I like to do, encourage people to do, and I say anybody can do this with really not a lot of information at all, just say, how much have you checked into the background of your prophet in your church? Because my understanding is, since Jesus said we need to test anybody who claims to be a prophet by their fruit, which is their life and their teaching, um, I feel like I should do that with Joseph Smith. And if a person has already done this, then they can say honestly, and I've done this, and what I discovered about Joseph Smith was very disturbing. And so if you want to mention a couple things you've discovered, if you've found about his polygamy, if you found about some of the fraud of the Book of Abraham, one or two very brief examples, not to convince them. Simply sharing what you found, and then say, "It seems like it would be important for you to check this out if you're going door to door, encouraging people to, you know, to join the Mormon Church." Right. So at a very minimal level. Now, if you want to go beyond that, there's a lot of ways you can go after that. You can, um, you can invite them back to begin, you know, studying with you. And and we have on our website, we're looking at what the Mormons are studying chapter by chapter, and we're providing um, an answer, a biblical answer, to their foundational teaching manual chapter by chapter. And the Mormons are up to like chapter 21, and so are we. So on our website, if somebody wants to go deeper and kind of have biblical responses, there's a lot of information available. So that's kind of at your door, and, and you do that with kindness and compassion. And if you're not a strong believer, if you're a new believer, then you keep it really simple and you don't try to, to engage them. Right. Um, in terms of scriptural doctrinal matters, because they are trained to deal with those sorts of things. Now, if it's a coworker, if it's a family member or friend where you've got long-term relationship, then uh, then it's different. Simply, well, the respect and compassion is still the same. But then I think what you want to do is start learning about them first. What, what's a, how did, when did they become a member? How did they become a member of the Mormon church? Are they, are they, you know, born in the covenant? In other words, were they born to Mormon parents? Have they always been a Mormon? Or are they somebody who's only converted in the last two to three years? Hmm. How long they've been a Mormon will really radically affect what we present and what we say to them. Right. Because a person who's been in the Mormon church for a long time is going to be very, um defensive and very closed to any negative quote unquote anti-mormon material or literature sure. he's been conditioned to reject that um because just like you're convinced of the truth of the book of mormon by these subjective feelings the counterpart to that is you're you're also taught as a new mormon convert that just like positive feelings come from the holy spirit any negative feelings or doubt come from the devil yeah so that when you present something to a Mormon that makes him begin to feel uneasy or disquieted or unsure inside, he associates that feeling with Satan and the devil. And he's going to reject anything associated with it. Yeah. So you just have to be ready. That is, if you start talking to a Mormon and raising some issues where he becomes uncomfortable, don't be surprised if he says, well, I don't want to hear anymore. I think this is from Satan. This is producing a spirit of doubt and you, you then have the challenge of helping him work through that. Um, one of the best ways I found of helping him work through that is to simply ask him, is it true from Scripture that the Holy Spirit only gives positive feelings? And really we know from John, I think it's John 16 or 17, that the Holy Spirit actually, part of his work is to convince of judgment and sin. That's right. Um, and guilt. And so really the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and error and that isn't a positive feeling. So right. often doubt is the first penetration of new truth. And I found just by sharing that much with a Mormon, it helps them realign that paradigm that good feelings are Holy Spirit, bad feelings are double. Um, and so with a, with a person you have a chance to interact with, at some point you're going to want to address that paradigm. So they start even being open to feelings that are a little bit disturbing or disquieting. Does that make sense, Chris?
0: Absolutely it does, yeah.
2: Okay. And the next thing is, I think where it's good to go is to help Mormons come to an awareness of their personal sin. Because the Mormon Church does not emphasize deep sin. um, Sins of the heart. Lust. Greed. Envy. Jealousy. um, Pride. Positioning. Manipulation. It's much more focused on the murder, the stealing, the adultery. And so many Mormons remain unaware of how deeply rooted their sin is. And for that reason, they don't see themselves in profound need of, of a salvation that's totally outside their ability to earn it. Yeah. And we have, and we have materials on our website, you know, or people can write to me that are that are outlined. It's a thing you know where people can walk through. In fact, I just had a woman in my office yesterday um that I that I gave this to her and gave it to her because she had Mormons that came to her house and they're going to come back. Um and she wanted to have something to walk through. Because this avoids debate. Um, the whole purpose is you engage at a level where it's not attacking Mormonism. It's not throwing anti-Mormon literature in their face. It's really coming to them to address their own spiritual needs and concerns, and to kind of open them up to what their true spiritual need is. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's with somebody where you have a relate that's a far better way to go. Initially, um, is you're looking for the relational connection, so you're addressing. And I would really encourage people to be open about their own struggle with sin. Yeah. Um, to say, hey, I struggle. These are the issues. I struggle with pride. I struggle with greed. I struggle with envy in the office. And this is how God is showing me and working. Um, because often by exposing our own sinfulness and how God's addressing that, we begin to open the door, um, to them maybe begin seeing some things in their own lives they haven't seen before.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really good stuff. That's really helpful. Um, <laughs> I, I, I often find, uh, find myself not really knowing what to do. So this has been really good. Is, is there a, any sort of parting message you'd like to leave my listeners, uh, and myself with? Uh, what would you most like us to take away from our discussion today?
2: I guess what I'd like to do for our listeners is influence their paradigm for how they view, um, Mormon people. And I'm going to take that right from scripture. Okay. Um, from Romans chapter 10, um, which is Paul talking about Israel. And here's what um, the Apostle Paul says. He says, Brothers, this is Romans 10, 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And I think what we can do is we can substitute Mormons for Israelites there and say my prayer to God is that Mormons might be saved because I can testify they are zealous for God but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. Um, And if that's our understanding, we're going to move with compassion. Now, when we talk about Mormon leadership in the Mormon Church, yeah, I, I think we look at the leadership of the Mormon Church that's promoting some of the stuff that's hiding, that's covering up. Um, we have to look at them as false prophets that that Scripture is warning us about as as ravenous wolves who are doing great spiritual damage. But that's not your average Mormon. Hmm. And I don't even think it's your average Mormon missionary because they also are zealous and they they really don't know a lot, hmm. so yeah, we need to be aware of the spiritual danger that they present, but I think we need to see them as lost sheep um, and people we desire that we hope God will have compassion on them, and I think if that's our if that's our paradigm, we approach the whole subject differently um in a way that God can move. So,
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, and, and, and I appreciate the time that you've taken with, I mean, with me today. Where can my listeners go to learn more about you, about the Institute for Religious Research? How can they contact you, get some of these materials you've spoken about?
2: Sure. Um, you can find us on the web. We've got material in 27 different languages. It's IRR.org and you don't even need a www in front of it. So it's just Institute for Religious Research, I-R-R-O-R-G. dot um And we have a general um, email inbox for inquiries, which is info, I-N-F-O, at I-R-R If they want to contact me um, directly, they're welcome to do that. And my email is simply Joel, J-O-E-L, at I-R-R dot O-R-G. And obviously, it'd be helpful if they... Um, do contact us as a result of the podcast that they, you know, they indicate, you know, where they heard about us from. Cause that helps both you and me kind of track, <laughs> yeah. um, where people are getting the information. But so that is the best way is the web. Um, we've got a phone number if people want to call and I can certainly give that out. That's 616 451 4562. There are three of us that are here. Um, two of us on full-time staff, and then the president of our board is also here doing some office managerial work for us. So we're a fairly small office and staff. Uh, God's just blessed us with the ability of a lot of material. Yeah. Um, Robert Bowman, who anybody who's been involved in apologetics, um, and especially writing related to Jehovah's Witnesses and theological issue, recognizes um, Rob Bowman's name. He's our director of research, hmm. and um, it's great to work with him. And like you you know, said, my name is Joel uh, Grode, and I am our director of ministries. And um, and then we have president of our board who's working uh, with us kind of as office manager and director. And so the three of us are, with God's help, what makes it happen. And we're delighted because we are seeing almost every day now, if ne- if not weekly, we are seeing people writing us saying, thank you so much. I've been a Mormon for 15 years. There's so much I didn't know. Um, your site has been very helpful. And I think what people find in our site is, especially our Mormons in Transition site, which is all geared toward Mormonism, takes a very compassionate, understated, well-documented approach to helping and allowing Mormons to search out this information um, for themselves and provide them with a biblical alternative. Because we don't want them just to simply recognize what's false about Mormonism. We want them to come to uh, faith in Christ and enter into the community uh, of Christ um, so they can continue to have really all the things that they're looking for, worthiness before God, forgiveness of sins, a right relationship and a relationship with fellow believers that we all need. Yeah,
0: <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And you know, listeners, I I, I I can't speak highly enough about the Institute for Religious Research. Do check them out. And I just want to thank you again so much, Joel, for for joining us today. I really appreciate your time.
2: You're very welcome, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I know that I certainly did, and I got a lot out of it as well. I'm going to dive deeper into the topics that we discussed today in future episodes. And between now and then, I hope that you'll check out the Institute for Religious Researchers website at IRR.org. There's a lot of information there about Mormonism to whet your appetite until I come back to address it. So in the next episode, I intend to address justification by faith alone. I hope that you'll join me for that upcoming episode. Until then...